Well, we are at the uh, tail end of our Avenues series, eight weeks, one chapter in the Bible that we have been spending time in, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be wrapping it up today looking at a story that at first glance is going to seem incredibly simple to all of us, but I'm telling you, the average Christian today has trouble explaining this very simple story that we're going to look at today, especially the latter half of it. You'll, you'll, you'll see what I mean. So as our Cactus Campus and then our venue across campus and then our chapel next door, join us right now for Teaching in the Word. Would you all bow with me and let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. God, I thank you for the gathered church here this morning where we can uh, focus on you, your son Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit and worship you through lifting our voices to you, fellowshipping with one another. And now, Lord, turning to your word, which we believe through the eyes of faith is life to our souls, life to our very minds and hearts as we learn about you and then respond obediently, God, to that which you reveal to us. So, God, as we wrap up this series today on the various avenues that we can go through to know your son, Jesus Christ, and become more serious followers of him. I pray that you might help us to understand rightly this simple but profound story before us, and that, Lord, we, our response will be then to apply it diligently to our lives. So bless your, this time in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to read the text, and you guys are going to do what? Perfect. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. And as we read the passage before us, uh, I want you to realize that this is still very early on in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he only has about four disciples at this point. He's eventually going to have 12 of his closest disciples. And yet, Mark is revealing to us these various avenues on how we can know Jesus, and he's about to reveal this avenue of faith and trust. So let's see what that's about. Mark chapter 1, follow along as I read verses 40 to 45. And a leper came to him, meaning Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sternly warned him and immediately sent him away and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. You may be seated. Thanks for standing. Uh, notice how this story begins there in verse 40 in a way that many, many people today would immediately get lost. It says there in verse 40, and a leper came to him, a leper. Uh, we don't have many lepers around today. The World Health Organization cites that there are less than 220,000 active cases of leprosy in the entire world, and almost all of them are in undeveloped, a country, in undeveloped countries. But back in Jesus' day, leprosy was both rampant and brutal. 
You see, it wasn't until about 1880 that we knew much about it when a Norwegian doctor named Hansen discovered that leprosy is caused by bacteria getting into the skin, affecting the nerves in one's body to the point where you would lose feeling and lose a sense of touch and you'd start to have erosion of body parts, even the complete loss of limbs. I mean, it was just a brutal bacterial disease. And as you can imagine, by 1940, when we discovered antibiotics, we could cure leprosy, and that's why it's hardly around today. But back in Jesus' day, what you need to know about leprosy is that it was a brutal disease, uh, rather contagious, spread basically through through, uh, skin to skin or the respiratory tract, and it certainly messed with everyday life. And yet, believe it or not, this was not the half of it, because not only was leprosy a physically brutal disease, but it also carried with it, and some of you know this, a religious and social stigma that separated uh, one as they were shunned by almost all of society. And you're saying, what's that about? It actually goes back to the Old Testament. As some of you know, in the Old Testament, God gave Israel a bunch of what we call ceremonial and purity laws and regulations that were designed to act as symbols of man's sinfulness and God's holiness. And one of these regulations was that if somebody contracted leprosy, they were considered unclean. And it wasn't that God was judging them necessarily. Again, it was a ceremonial law and purity regulation in which God was trying to show that this disease, leprosy, was the result of the fall of humankind, the result of sin coming into the world, as all sin and disease is and are. And God was simply trying to identify through these ceremonial and purity laws surrounding leprosy that humanity is separated and sinful, God is pure and holy, and that there eventually needs to be some type of forgiveness that would eventually come in Jesus, some type of help for humanity. And so these ceremony and purity laws that surrounded certain things, and in this case even leprosy, actually separated those people from the religious community. If you want, you can read about it in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. It spells it all out there, but what you read about is an elaborate set of regulations that the priest had to go through to declare a person a leper if they got leprosy, and then another elaborate set to declare the person clean from leprosy, and if somehow they actually did by a miracle get get leprosy out of them, this bacteria, then there was a set of four offerings that one had to make over an eight-day period of time to absolve oneself from this awful disease. And this is all contained in the Old Testament. But you see, what happened over time in the Jewish community is that by Jesus' day, because of all these laws and regulations, lepers became outcasts, or at least because of people's response to these laws and regulations. By the time of Jesus' day, lepers could not live inside the walled city of Jerusalem. That's why this leper is seen talking to Jesus outside of the walled city of Jerusalem here in northern Galilee. They couldn't enter another person's house or even touch another person, or they would be considered unclean themselves. And they could only attend synagogue, church back then, if they sat in the back with a veil between them and the religious community so that they couldn't catch this disease or even come in contact with them uh, and get the disease themselves. 
And so simply see, two significant strikes against this leper, they suffered, or against lepers in general, they suffered from a devastating physical disease that knew no cure, and they were considered outcasts, unclean by most all of society. And this is the guy that's coming to Jesus. And you can almost now picture the scene that is unfolds before us because what happens, I'm sure, is that as this guy makes his way to Jesus with all the crowds there, the crowds do what? They part like the Red Sea, right? They're not going to touch him. They're not going to get anywhere near him. So picture this guy making his way to Jesus, and everybody is parting, almost like he's royalty, but he's not. And when he finally gets to Jesus, notice what verse 40 goes on to say. It says, and the leper came to him, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I'm going to submit to you in just a second here that contained in verse 40 here, even though it doesn't use the word, is our definition of faith in living color right before us, of faith and trust. Uh, that word beseeching here is a very strong term. It literally means to beg, as the NIV translation translates it. And to further show this man's desperate heart, it says that he was falling on his knees before Jesus. Luke, in his retelling of this story, actually has this guy falling on his face. So my guess is he fell on his knees and then fell on his face. And then to the core of this all, this uh, core of it all, this man speaks to Jesus and says, if you are willing you can make me clean. Now, let's be very clear what he's saying there. He's not doubting whether Jesus can heal him. In fact, it's the opposite. He's putting his full faith and trust in Jesus when he says, you can make me clean. Even early on in Jesus's ministry, this guy knew that there was something divine, something otherworldly, something very different about Jesus as one on this earth. And he was placing his faith and trust in him as one who could make him clean. He just didn't know if he would be willing to do so. So he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So I like how one Bible expert puts it, a commentator on the Gospel of Mark. He says, and I quote, he had unquestioning assumption of Jesus' ability to cure his condition. But he didn't want to presume on whether that meant that Jesus would. And folks, once you understand this, I would submit to you that right at this point, we are nudging up against what the core definition of faith is, seen in this desperate plea of this leper, and it's point one in your outline, and it's this, that faith is simply confidence in who God is and what he can do. If you've ever wondered what a good technical but very workable definition of faith and trust are, this is it. It is confidence in who God is and what he can do. And this is precisely what this leper is showing us here. He has unwavering confidence in Jesus' ability to heal him because even though he didn't understand all about who Jesus was and is, he knew that there was something God-like, something divine. Eventually, we would understand that he was and is God incarnate, that he was the second person of the Trinity. God come for us. But this guy understood at least a portion of that, and he places his confidence, his faith, in who Jesus is and what he knew that he could do in his life. And that's faith. It's recognizing who God is, taking him at his word, and then placing one's confidence 
in both his attributes as well as his declared actions and abilities. If you doubt this at all, the book of Hebrews would go on to say it this way when it gives us a very technical definition, again, of faith. It says in Hebrews 11 verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There it is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not, of not seen. So it's a capacity to trust, a capacity to have confidence in something, assurance and conviction, even in things that you do not fully see or understand fully, like this leper here with Jesus, but you still make the choice to rest your weight upon something, to have confidence in it, to believe in it. And when you do that, the Bible says that is faith. And obviously, and we're going to parse this out in just a second here, the Bible also always says that faith needs to have an object, and that object, we hope, is God, or in this case here, Jesus. And folks, the reason that this is so important, that you and I see faith this way and understand what faith and trust are, is that we live in a culture today, I don't know if you've noticed, that is totally messed up in its understanding of and its use of faith. It really is. Let's talk about this for a second. First, I think we need to recognize about our culture today, and, and you've probably noticed this, is that it's actually very vogue to be a person of faith. Have you noticed that? Maybe not to be a Christian or something, but if you just simply say to your neighbor or to a friend or a coworker, I'm a person of faith, you are very politically correct. I hear it all the time. I, I hear it on some of the most strangest places in culture. I'm a person of faith. You have faith, I have faith. I think it's good to have faith. And as a result of this, we have faith-based governmental programs, faith healers, faith practitioners, faith-based educational programs. I mean, you look close. Our culture does not shy away from talking about faith. We talk about faith all the time in 21st century postmodern living, and I would submit to you that this is a good thing, that you and I should be thankful that people don't shy away from this idea of faith and that they're actually open and into being a person of faith. But here is where we have to be careful, because you see, with all this talk about faith in our culture today, have you ever noticed there's rarely ever any talk about the actual objects of our faith. In other words, people talk all the time about how good it is to have faith, but they do so when you look close, actually treating faith as something you believe in, like faith in faith itself. Faith is actually in our culture today become the end goal. It's become the object itself. The way that many people use faith today is not faith with an actual declared object, or even if they do have an object, it's something like fate, or hey, that's just the way it is, or maybe even faith in myself and my abilities. No, but mo most people use, use the word faith today is that they just stop with faith being a standalone entity without any object and just say, I think it's great to have faith. And having faith is all that matters. But what we need to recognize this morning is that the Bible never paints a picture of faith as something you believe in. Now, don't miss this. It paints a picture of faith as something you believe with. Faith is not the end goal. 
Faith, for purposes of our series here, is an avenue. It's a tool. It's a capacity that you and I have and use in our lives to trust with this idea of faith in an actual object. And though we have many, many temptations in our world, as we'll see here in a minute, to trust in lots of different things, the Bible obviously always is trying to tell us to have as the object of our faith God and His revealed Son, Jesus Christ. But our culture today doesn't get that. It stops at faith in general and robs itself of any intelligent discussion of who or why we should be trusting in Jesus. If you're not convinced about this, I want you to listen to a quote by Sheryl Crow, of all people, the popular singer and ex-girlfriend of Lance Armstrong in an interview that she did a few years back with the New York Post. And I just want to say I'm not here to pick on Sheryl Crow, that's not the point, but simply to show you from her public words where people's conception of, or what people's conception of faith is today. This is very revealing. She says this, and I quote, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all those that were enlightened. I wouldn't say necessarily that I'm a strict Christian. I'm not sure I believe in heaven. Now, now folks, you got to ask when you read something like this, what is going on here? I mean, really, what would cause a person to say something like this? And I think the answer is relatively simple. It's a culture that we're all immersed in today that has elevated faith as a good thing. So she doesn't mind talking about faith. But as soon as she starts to go to talk about the object of her faith, which she does here, it's a a free-for-all. Do you notice that? I mean, it's all over the map. And again, I'm not picking on her, but if we were in any um, a setting, say, on interfaith discussions with the experts from uh, Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism and Christianity, most of them uh, would admit that to say, I believe in Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad doesn't really make sense because they said very mutually exclusive things, and that's why we have major world religions that aren't all one. Most of the experts within world religions get that, but not our culture today. Our culture today has stopped at faith in general, and we've refused to move on because it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about the object of our faith, and hence when we do, it's a free-for-all. And along comes Jesus, and his core challenge to you and me, as seen in his interactions with so many people that he rubbed shoulders with on this earth, including this leper in our story today, is to, yes, elevate faith, and even to applaud our culture today for elevating faith. It's a good thing. But then to discover God's grace-given object of faith, Jesus himself, and to not be shy to talk intelligently about that and reasonably about that because I'm telling you, all over the Bible, whenever it mentions faith, especially in the New Testament, it talks about the object, and that object is Jesus Christ. We're going to study the Gospel of John next uh, year uh, here at our church. We're going to spend the whole year in the first half of John. And you're going to see some statements because John is such a rich, rich gospel that are going to blow your mind. 
One of the statements that blows people's mind is found in John 14, verses 6 and 1. Look up here on the screen. Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believe in God, believe also in me. When people say to me, why is it so important that we need to have faith in Jesus and not just faith in God? I'll say, don't shoot the messenger. Christians aren't the ones that say that. Jesus is the one that says that. We're just reading the book. And reading the book, I would, I would say rightly. Jesus is the one who called people to faith and faith in himself. So the first thing that this leper teaches us about this avenue of faith is precisely what faith is. Don't ever forget this, guys. It's a confidence in who God is and what he can do. And it has an avenue, and that is trust and confidence, and it has an object, and that is Jesus. Now, with this understanding, notice a second thing this interplay teaches us, or between Jesus and this leper teaches us, and I'm not going to spend much time on this at all today for time purposes. This is for another sermon, but we need to honor this because it's going on here, and that is that God responds to our faith with ongoing activity and grace. Uh, look with me uh, to see this uh, at Mark chapter 1, and this time look at what happens next in verses 41 and 42. It says, And moved with compassion, he, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And now try to catch what's going on here, guys, because this is really profound, even in all of its simplicity. You got this leper who's coming to Jesus. And he's already said when the leper came in, the crowds would have clearly parted because you don't want to touch a guy like this. And he asked Jesus to heal him. He says, if you're willing, you can heal him. Only twice ever in the Old Testament was somebody ever healed of leprosy. Miriam and Naaman. You can read about themselves. Look them up in your concordance things. Miriam and Naaman in the Old Testament were, were healed of leprosy only twice ever in all of the Old Testament. And this guy's asking Jesus to heal him. And what Jesus does next would have completely shocked the crowd, because what did he do? He reached out, and say it with me, he touched him. Now, do you get the, do you get the symbolism there? He touched him. <laughs> and as soon as he touched him, every religious leader there, every good Jew would have said what about Jesus? He is now unclean. But Jesus is pulling a fast one. Jesus touches him and says, not only am I not unclean, he is now clean. And so he reverses the trend of what happens when somebody touches a leper. This isn't just a miracle. It's turning the whole thing upside down. And Jesus is basically doing this in response to this man's faith. If you are willing, you can make me clean. This man placed his confidence in Jesus Christ. And the response, don't miss this, is that Jesus says, I am willing, I respond to your faith, and I will make you clean. I like how one Bible expert puts it. He says, compassion replaces contempt for Jesus. And what you need to know is that that's the character and nature of God. Let's apply this to your life right now. That when you take, have the guts to trust God, for little things and big things in your life. You know what he says? He says, that's exactly where I want you. 
I want you in dependency mode. I want you trusting me. I want you putting your confidence and faith in me. And when he does, his grace and even his activity is unleashed in our lives. And let's be clear, it doesn't always mean you're going to get your miracle. I mean, that's not the point. We'll see that in point three here in a minute. But what it does mean is that when we trust him in some way, God says he's going to start moving and acting in our lives. And all I know is that after 30 years of trusting him, I experience this, I hope you do too, on a regular basis. When I trust God, I get insights into his word. I talked about that uh, uh, last week. Uh, The fact that when I'm trusting God and I get alone with him and his word, it's like things jump off the page to me. I get insights and understanding, answers to questions that I've been asking for a long time. When you and I trust God, we get answers to prayers. Uh, When we trust God, we see hearts around us that we never thought could soften, soften. Have you ever seen that? I've seen it so often that I say all the time now to wayward 20-somethings that if you have a mother or a grandmother praying for you, just give up now. Because I have seen so often (laughs) when I see those 20-somethings kind of go against their Christian upbringing and and try to find their way and all this, I just kind of smile and I pray God's best on them, but I think you're a goner before you even start. Because you got some mom or a grandmother who's praying for you every single day. And here's what I know about God, is that he answers prayer. And that when we are in trust mode with him, again, it doesn't always mean we're going to get what we want. We've talked about that enough here. But it does mean that we're going to see the movement of God in our midst. Make no mistake, faith unleashes God's grace and activity in our lives. It always has, as we see here with the leper, and it always will. It's the second thing that the story of the leper teaches us. But it doesn't end here. There is one more thing. And I got to tell you, this one more thing seems to come out of left field. It almost doesn't seem to fit the whole genre of the story. It's where most Christians don't understand this story. I warned you about that earlier But I think it's so important for you and I to see this today, and here it is, and this is point three, and that is that we need to make sure to use our faith to love and follow God rather than to simply get something from Him. Whoa. I want you to look one last time at the story before us this morning, and I want you to look at how it wraps up. This is where, again, many Christians don't have an intelligent answer of how to explain this, but I I, I think I do. It says in verses 43 and 45, And he, Jesus, sternly warned him, warned him, the leper, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Now, let's understand this rightly. It's interesting. Instead of saying to this man, which Jesus could have, yay, you got your miracle, you're healed, let's go out and celebrate, it says something very interesting here. It says that Jesus sternly warned him. That almost doesn't seem to fit. You tracking with that? Like Jesus just gave him his miracle. He just healed this guy. He just applauded him for his faith. And then Jesus sternly warned him. And in the original language that Mark was written, in the Greek language, this is an angry phrase that Jesus is using here. 
Uh, this phrase in classic Greek actually means to snort. You ever been so angry like with your kids that you end up snorting and you're almost like embarrassed? That's what this phrase is getting at here. It's a stern, angry tone that Jesus has here. He's borderline ticked at this moment, and yet he tells us why. He doesn't want this man to say anything to anyone about this faith-released gift from God that this leper has gotten. He wants him to celebrate quietly by making a three-day trip to Jerusalem where he will spend eight days being ritually cleansed by a priest now that he's been healed from leprosy. And it's a command that Jesus gives here. Don't miss that. It's a command in the original tense, both in the Greek and in English. And the reason Jesus tells the man, traces back, and you have to know the whole context of Mark 1, it traces back to the day before that we talked about last week, where Jesus made it clear, I don't know if you remember this, that his main purpose in coming to earth was to preach the good news. It was to help people understand God, who he is, and how they can know him. And then eventually Jesus would go to the cross to pave the way through the forgiveness of our sins so that we can know him. And Jesus makes it clear earlier on in Mark 1 that that's his main purpose, not to just give everybody their miracle. His main purpose in coming to earth was not to bring comfort. It wasn't to make everybody happy. His main purpose coming was to proclaim the good news, and he doesn't want this guy here now going around and stirring up all the crowds so that they can come get their miracle. He wants to be able to enter into the crowds and teach them. But fascinating, this man, this same man who just moments ago was trusting Jesus and placing his faith in him to heal him, now slips into antitrust mode, disobedience mode. And he does not listen to what Jesus says. He does not trust his words here. And he does the exact opposite of what Jesus commands. And the results are devastating. Because the crowds become so great and strong that Jesus cannot enter the towns and villages anymore without getting mobbed. And so he has to stay outside and deal with all the people that now want their miracle. They want to get something from Jesus. And there's two things then you don't want to miss here. Look up here on the screen. First, the leper trusts and obeys Jesus only so far as he gets what he wants from him. I'm not trying to be unfair. That's exactly what's happening here. And then the crowds, secondly, notice the crowds now slip into consumer mode as well flocking to Jesus to now use him as their divine candy machine to get what they want from him as well. And Jesus is not happy about this. It is not why he came. He's after something much more in your life, in their life back then, in my life. Now, don't miss this. He wants us to know him. He wants us to love him. As I say so often, I feel like a scratch CD. He wants us to find our sufficiency and our satisfaction in Him and Him alone. And when we start to use Him to get what we want from Him, it's a thin line here we're talking about, we actually then usurp at times this idea of really getting to know Him. And so in a very real sense, guys, see it this way. They're at odds with each other. It's a battle you and I have every day that we're either going to approach Jesus with the purity of motives that says, here I am, open book, I just want to know you, and I want to follow you and love you and find my satisfaction in you, or to approach him and say, doggone it, I got an agenda for my life, and I want you to join me in my agenda, 
and give me my miracle. And some of you say today, well, I don't do that today because, you know, I'm not real charismatic and I don't really believe in miracles and I don't pray for those and all things like that. Yeah, but the problem is you do. Here's what happens. Is that though you might be a person who uh, isn't all that charismatic, uh, you want your kids to turn out right. You want your job to go well. You want to be financially secure. You want your marriage to be better. You want your emotions to work right. No anxiety, no depression, no anger and rage. So you want all that because you're a good American. And, And without even knowing it, tell me if this isn't true. When those things go south on us, and they do, because this is a fallen world, we are so tempted, and sometimes we do this, I do this, we look at God, and we say, what's up, God? What's up? I I, I mean, God, I've I've loved you. I've had devotions every day, at least 10 minutes, every morning with you. And I go to church, and I attend some Bible studies, and you got some of my money. I've been pretty faithful, God. And what do I get for this? A wife who doesn't understand me. Kids that don't listen to me. Money problems that aren't all my fault. (laughs) Emotions that seem out of control. And we look at God and we never say it this boldly, but we say, what's up? Why isn't my life better? Why aren't you coming through for me? And I'm telling you guys, right at that moment, God who loves you, and is is so patient with you, but he sees you as a three-year-old child that you are in that moment. He says to you, I mean, you came to me for all that. I thought you came to me because you wanted to love me. I thought you came to me because you wanted to know me. Now you're telling me you came to me because you wanted your life to work? Haven't you read my book, This is a Fallen World? It's not going to work the way you want it to all the time, if not even much of the time. That's what heaven is for. By the way, your life is really short, too. You think it's long? 80, 90 years at the most. As Isaiah the prophet said, you're like grass, here today and gone tomorrow. That's a wonderful illustration. That's how God sees your life compared to eternity. And he says to you and me, just hang in there because eternity is forever. And eternity is the real show. You're just practicing here. But you got to practice right. you got to practice by loving me and wanting to know me for me. When you muck it up by saying, if I don't get my miracle, if I don't get my agenda met, then I don't know if God is really who he says he is. Then all you've done is become like the leper. And I don't think any of us want to be like the leper. I think we want to become like a faith-filled follower. I want to wrap up today before we go on to our elder fund offering, which is what we're going to close with here in a few minutes in another worship song, by reading you a, a really simple but wonderful story that I found a few years back in my study. It was in a magazine, Today's Christian, and it was written by a guy named Tina Blessed. And I think you're going to like this story. I think you're going to love the point that it makes. Here's what she says. In the fall of 2005, my nine-year-old son Austin had his tonsils removed. Before the surgery, an anesthesiologist came in to start an IV. He was wearing a cool surgical cap covered in colorful frogs. Austin loved that frog hat. When the doctor started to leave, Austin called out, Hey, wait. The doctor turned, Yeah, buddy, what do you need? Do you go to church? My son asked. No, the doctor admitted. I know I probably should, but I don't. Austin then asked, Well, are you saved? Chuckling nervously, the doctor said, Nope. But after talking to you, maybe it's something I should consider. 
And pleased with his response, Austin answered, well, you should because Jesus is great. I'm sure he is, little guy, the doctor said, and then he quickly made his exits. Blessed goes on to say, when Austin's surgery was finished, the anesthesiologist came into the waiting room to talk to me. He told me that the surgery went well, and then he said, Mrs. Blessed, I usually don't come down and talk to the parents after surgery, but I just had to tell you what your son did. Oh boy, I thought, what did he do now? <laughs> the doctor explained that he had just put the mask on Austin in the surgery room when my son signaled that he needed to say something else. When the doctor removed the mask, Austin blurted, wait a minute, we have to pray. The doctor said to him, go ahead. And Austin prayed, dear Lord, please let all the doctors and nurses have a good day. And Jesus, please let the doctor with the frog hat get saved and start going to church. <laughs> Amen. She goes on to say, the doctor admitted that this had touched him deeply. He said, I was so sure that he would pray that his surgery would go well, but Mrs. Blessed, he didn't even mention his surgery. He prayed for me, and I had to come down and let you know what a great little guy that you have. She wraps up by saying, a few minutes later, a nurse came in to take me to post-op. She had a big smile on her face as we walked to the elevator. There's something you should know, she said. Some of the other nurses and I have been praying for that doctor for a very long time. And your son's surgery, after your son's surgery, he tracked a few of us down to tell us about Austin's prayer. He said, well, girls, you got me. If that little boy could pray for me when he was about to have surgery, then I think maybe I need this Jesus as well. See, here's the point of that story, and I hope it's not lost on you. I think this nine-year-old boy gets it. I think he gets that it's not simply about trusting Christ so that his operation will go smoothly, though I'm sure he wanted that. I think that he gets that there's something much bigger and grander that God is up to on planet Earth, and that is that people might know him. And he wasn't even shy to pray in that moment, and I'm not sure at nine he even knew what he was doing, but he's making a huge distinction between him loving Jesus for what he could get and him loving Jesus and trusting Jesus so that others and himself might know him. And all I can say is that if a nine-year-old boy can do it, <laughs> so can you. And you can do it even this week. So what's it going to be for you? You can identify with the healed leper who trusted Jesus only so far but really wasn't willing to go the distance, or are you going to be all in? Trusting him no matter what. That song that we sang earlier, uh, just about blessing him through anything and everything because we realize that he's up to something really big in our lives, and that's preparing us for eternity with him. Here and in our chapel and in our venue and in our Cactus Campus, we're going to go into a time now where we take up our elder fund offering. Many of you know this is not a double dip. This is simply a time where we get to give again to those in need in our congregation and in our community. And so as we enter into that time, would you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all that you are to us. And God, I wish, oh, I wish I could help each person here today see and feel that that at the end of the day you love us so much that you want us to be in sync with the greatest gift of all of eternity, and that is the gift of you and knowing you and experiencing you. And Lord, certainly part of experiencing you is having wonderful, comfort-laden, even great things happen in our lives in which we can look back and say, only God. But Lord, even when those things don't happen, you're still up to something huge in our lives. And 
we, at least I, honor that today. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here that, that, that we would not be the leper in this story, though he did trust so far, but that, Lord, we would be one who responds obediently to you and says that our great goal is simply to get out of the way and allow you to do your work in the lives of those around us so that you might help them know you and help us know you. God, thanks for this teaching. Thanks for Mark chapter 1 and all that it's shown us about the avenues to how we know you. We trust you. We place our faith in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.